All right, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to move fast. We want to look at three chapters today, 43, 44, and 45 in Genesis. I'm not going to read all of that to you or you would fall asleep. So I'm going to pick and choose a few verses. Let me recap where we were last week. It's really important moving forward. We look at Genesis 42. Joseph is now the administrator in Egypt. He is running the food supply uh, beginning in chapter 43. When we'll look today, we're two years into a seven-year famine. In chapter 42, the famine reaches Canaan. Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, his family is now starving. And so he sends ten older brothers, the ten brothers who had sold Joseph into slavery, he sends them to Egypt to buy food. When they come and see Joseph, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He speaks to them harshly, and then he has this, he remembers his dreams. We'll talk about that in a second. Puts them in jail for a few days to regroup. Then he kind of goes after them. He calls them spies. He knows there's not spy, they're not spies, but he's going after them. He's manipulating them. I think in a good way, he's trying to get his family to Egypt. The, the way it all shakes out is he keeps Simeon, who's the second oldest, and says, I'm going to keep Simeon. You guys, I think you're spies. The only way for you to prove to me that you're not spies is by validating your story, this story that you have a younger brother. So if you want Simeon released, and if you want food, again, then you bring your younger brother to me. So the boys go home. When they get home, they realize that all of the money that they brought to pay for with their grain was still in their bags. Joseph had given them their money back, and they didn't know. They're really worried about what God is doing to them. They have this guilty conscience uh, relating to what they had done to Joseph 21 years ago. They'd never confessed. They'd never repented. They're living with this ongoing lie with their father. They tell their dad, say, hey, listen. We need Benjamin to go back, and he says, absolutely not. There's no way I'm risking my favorite sending him to Egypt. Now, starting in chapter 43. Now, the famine was still severe in the land, so when they had eaten, that's Jacob and his family, had eaten all the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy a little more food. But then Judah says, no, we can't go. We can't do it unless you're going to send Benjamin with us. It doesn't do us any good to go back. And so they go back and forth, back and forth. And finally, Judah says this in verse 8. Judah says to his father, send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him, before, set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we'd not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. So you hear what Judah's saying. I'm responsible. Send Benjamin with me. If I don't bring him back, then you can take it out on me. So then Jacob relents. He sends all of the brothers, the ten older brothers plus Benjamin, the youngest. They go. When they get to Egypt, they're invited to eat lunch with Joseph, and they think that's bad. They think, oh, he knows about the money that was still in our bags and he's going to arrest us. Something bad's going to happen. So they work, they go to the steward and say, listen, we didn't mean, we, we didn't mean anything by it. We paid. I don't know how the money got back in our bag. And the steward says, don't worry about it. We're square. Your God must have blessed you. So then they have lunch with Joseph. He gets to see that Benjamin's okay. And then he sends them on their way. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 44, verse 1. Now, Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry. Put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. 
And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to them, they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouth of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. So you got that. Very well then. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. So he lessens the punishment. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. They all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We're now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who, who, have found, who is to find, excuse me, we ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. Joseph said, "Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace." You get what was going on there. So some people see that as a test. Joseph set up this test in order to see what was going on. In the brothers' hearts. That's not what I think. I do think it was a test. I don't think it was set up by Joseph. If you remember last week, I said the two pivotal points in that chapter, in my opinion. Joseph speaks harshly to the brothers, and then the Bible says he remembered the dreams that he has, he had about them. And every time the word remembered is used in Genesis, it's tied to rescue or salvation. So he's speaking harshly to them. I'm sure he's thinking 21 years of my misery that at your hands, I'm about to pay you back. And then he remembers, I think God reminded him, reminded him of those dreams he had as a 17-year-old kid. And I think it disorients him. And so he kind of flies off the hands, he puts him in jail for three days. And I think for that three days, God is working in Joseph's heart. Remember last week we said, sometimes in the Bible, three days is is just three days. And sometimes it's really important. You see it with Jonah, three days in the belly of a whale. You see it with Saul, three days when he's blind. Saul, who becomes Paul, three days that he's blind. During those three-day periods, those guys are stuck in some ways. And God is doing some things in their heart about their calling. And I think that's what was going on during those three days with Joseph. I think what God was doing was he was pulling the curtain back and saying, here's what's been going on for the last 21 years of your life. These are the things that you've been experiencing, and that's all you've known, which is fine. You're a person, and that's all you can know. Now, I'm going to allow you to see what I've been doing for the last 21 years of your life. And it changed everything. Joseph goes from speaking harshly to his brothers to weeping over them. He cries all the time. Huge baby. Through all of these chapters. Five times it says he weeps over his brothers. He's gone from, I think, wanting to wring their neck. To crying because he realized, oh, this is it. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. So I think what's going on here is God is orchestrating this test. And Joseph is in on it. I think from... That, I think it was chapter, from verse 9 on, once he puts it in chapter 42, when he remembers these dreams and then he has this three-day period. I think that's in verse 18. I think Joseph is listening to the Lord. How do you want me to handle this situation 
with my family. The goal is to get all the family to Egypt so they can be taken care of for this famine. And so I think the whole thing with the cup, it's just designed to get them back and to get their dad there. That's all he's trying to do. He's trying to get the whole family back. And I think it's an opportunity for Joseph to see what's in their heart, but I don't think it's Joseph's doing. I think it's God saying, here, I want to show you. I've been at work in you, and I've been at work in them as well. He puts them in the same situation they were in 22 years earlier. Favorite son, Benjamin is the new favorite. Remember last week, Joseph said, excuse me, Jacob said, I'm not sending Benjamin back because if he dies, I don't have anyone left. He has 10 sons, but he says, if he dies, I won't have any left. He's the favorite. Benjamin is the new favorite. And they get that, and if they're still driven by competition and rivalry and jealousy, they have a great opportunity to leave Benjamin in Egypt. What they can say is, Dad, it wasn't our fault. He's a grown man. He's at least in his mid-twenties. He stole this guy's cup, and it was a really important cup. He shouldn't have done it. And so he's in jail, and there's nothing we can do about it. In their mind, they have no idea how long the famine's going to be. They may think we're never going to have to go to Egypt again. And they could leave Benjamin, the new favorite, in Egypt. But that's not what they do. That's not what they do. What do they do? When they find out, oh, it's Benjamin. I'm wondering as the stewards going through the book bags, like each one, are they going like, oh, all right, maybe it's a mistake. Oldest, second oldest, third oldest. Or are they thinking, hey, maybe it's just a mistake. We're going to get out of this. Or are they thinking, oh, no, it's not me. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. Are they thinking it's going to wind up being Benjamin? I don't know. But when it is, what do they do? They express their corporate grief, they tear their clothes, they all go back. And they say, we, we can't allow this to continue. And so then Judah, this long speech he gives to Joseph. And he says, you can't keep him. He recounts their first visit with a lot of emotion. He's saying, you can't keep my youngest brother. And here's why he says so, verse 30. If the boy is not with us, that's Benjamin, when I go back, and if my excuse me, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. What he's saying, my dad loves him so much, if he doesn't come back, he's done. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed, that's Judah, Judah guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave, in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, don't let me see the misery that would come on my father. You see a huge change in Judah. If you remember in chapter 37, he was the one who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. He's the one that said, hey, why should we kill him? We don't get anything out of that. Let's sell him, and then we get 20 pieces of silver for him, at least. That was his idea, and now what's he doing? He's offering to stand in Benjamin's place. Benjamin is guilty as far as any of them know. The cup was found in his bag. So as far as anybody knows, Benjamin is responsible for this theft. The penalty for that is life in prison in Egypt. And what Judah says is, let me stay instead of him. If we zoom back, the fancy phrase for that is substitutionary atonement. You never need to use that phrase in your life. But that's what that means. It's a picture here with Judah of what Jesus does for us. Thousands of years later, Judah actually is an ancestor to Jesus. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. If you ever wonder, what's a picture? I don't get the cross. I don't understand all of this stuff with sin and death and how that ties into me. Here is a picture. Paul says in Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. I've never met anybody who said they've lived a perfect life. Everybody acknowledges some level of 
whether they want to call it sin, some level of missing the mark. That's a definition for sin. There are things they should have done and they didn't, or there are things they did and they shouldn't have done. Never met anybody who would say, I'm batting a thousand over the course of my life. According to Paul, the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That is, that's what the punishment for sin, not just for our sinful acts, but the fact that we're born bent away from God. We have this independent streak in all of us. We're all born with it. You can see it even in little children, this independent streak, because I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to live, I know what's best, and I'm going to go my own way. That's sin with a capital S. The wages of that is death. That's what we deserve because of the sinful acts and because of this bent nature that we have. What Jesus does is he stands in our place, just like we see Judah offering to do with Benjamin. He says, listen, I'm going to take the punishment. You deserve death. I'm going to be a substitute for you. I'm going to stand in your place, and then my death for you is going to atone. It's going to make things right between you and the Father. That's a, this is a picture of the cross, the motivation for Judah, because he loves his dad so much. He doesn't want to see his dad miserable. Again, interesting, because he didn't care about that 22 years earlier. But God's done something in his heart, most likely over the last few months, since that first visit that we looked at last week, where now Judah does care. He is concerned. He's, God stirred something in his heart, and he's saying, it's not, I, don't, I can't put my dad through that. John 3:16. for God so loved us that he did the same thing that he took the price, he took the punishment that we deserve. If you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus, and you would admit, yeah, I've blown it at least a time or two along the way, then that's your situation. Right now, you're on the hook for your sins. There's going to be payment for those things. It's either you or Jesus. And right now, unless you trust him, then what you're saying is, I'm going to pay my own way. And the, what that looks like is eternal separation from God. If you'll say, you know what? No. I'm going to let, someone, I'm going to let Jesus pay for my sin. He's already done it. He's already written the check. And the check's already cashed. That's what the resurrection proved, that it was his death was sufficient. If you're willing to say, hey, I'm going to allow him to pay the penalty that I deserve, then you can be reconciled to God. You can go from being an enemy. That's a, hard, a harsh word, but that's what Second Corinthians says we are. You can go from being an enemy of God to his friend this morning. And it's as simple as putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. It sounds too easy. That's not, that doesn't seem, what's my part in that? Your part is to say yes to him. That's it. That's your part. That's why it's grace. Verse 40, or chapter 46. So Israel, oh, excuse me, 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was none with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly, there we go, that the Egyptians heard him, and and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph, is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. You think about that. If you were one of those brothers who had sold him into slavery 22 years before, and now he's in front of you, you didn't recognize him, you think he's been pulling your strings, and you, rec- and you realize he can do whatever he wants to me. He has all power in this place. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. Remember, they couldn't recognize him, and so he's asking them to come in so they can get a closer look. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph. 
the one you sold into Egypt. That's something only he would know. And now don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourself for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and the ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five more years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that's really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you've seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin, and guess what he did? Wept! And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers, and he wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Pharaoh hears about it, and he's thrilled. Bring them all. He says, you get all your family to come, you tell them not to bring anything. They're going to live here in the best of the land, and they're going to live off the best of the land. I'm going to send a bunch of empty carts so you can just load everybody up and bring them back. And they don't need to bring any of their stuff. Verse 25. So the brothers went up out of Egypt. They came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They said, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. That word means his heart went numb. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go. And we, excuse me. And I will go and see him before I die. We'll look at that reunion next week. What I want us to see this week is this chunk, really verses verses 4, kind of 5 through 8, I think are really important for us. You see this, again, that three days from last week is so important to me. And I feel like we all need one of those types of experiences. We need something where God kind of zooms us out and says, here's what I've been doing. And you can see with Joseph, he has perspective on the last 22 years that he didn't have before. He's gone from just kind of looking at the events of his life. We're all really good at telling our own story. A lot of us aren't very good at telling what our story means. And that's what God does for Jacob, or excuse me, for Joseph during those three days is he gives meaning to the last 22 years of his life, what's been going on during that stretch Let me read this to you again. It'll be up on the screen with some words highlighted that are important. He said, they're they're terrified. They're afraid Joseph's going to kill him. And he says, here's why you don't need to worry about it. Don't be distressed and don't be angry. How come? Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years, there's been famine in the land. For the next five, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you. Why? to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Think about that. It was not you who sent me here, but God. We know it was them who sent him. It's like they're the ones that sold him into slavery, and Joseph's able to say it wasn't you. It was God. He has a whole new perspective. That word sent in the Bible is often attached to someone who's been dispatched for a purpose. And that's what Joseph's beginning to see. His life has not been a series of betrayals and tragedy. There's purpose behind it. God is the one who sent him to the place 
where he is now. He sees meaning behind the last 22 years. That perspective does a couple of things for him. One is it it relativizes or it, it shrinks the difficulties that he has experienced. It's easy when you're in the midst of a difficult time to allow that, that time to dominate your thinking. You're waiting on the other shoe to drop. You're kind of a, it's easy to get into a victim mentality. Woe is me. Bad things keep happening to me. Why is this stuff happening to me? Why isn't anything changing in my life? And when you get perspective, particularly God's perspective, it can shrink those negative thoughts and kind of shrink the difficulties that you're experiencing. Not every time in the Bible, but often in the Bible, people climb a mountain when they want to be with God. I don't know if they figure mountains are geographically closer to heaven or what, but that's what they do. One of the things mountains do is they allow you to have perspective over everything beneath. And that's something I think that many of us need is we need, we need a mountain so we can gain some perspective. We show that next slide, Alex. So God's been at work for since Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin and he has a choice. He can kill them because the wages of sin is death. Or he can set about on this great plan of redemption, which is what he does. When he chooses to make clothes for Adam and Eve, what he's saying is, all right, I'm not, I'm not cutting bait with y'all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with you, and I'm going to work through you, and we're going to make everything right. And so for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, in the lives of millions and 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 millions of people, God's at work bringing everything towards Revelation 21. I'm making everything new. He's not just in the business of saving individuals. That's a part of it, but he's about so much more. Romans 8 talks about all of creation groaning. He's going to fix everything, all things he's making new. He's making us new. He's making the world new. He's making the universe new. That's what everything is moving towards. It's this grand cosmic plan that's been going on for millennia. And I think Joseph gets a little glimpse of that, and he realizes my last 13 years, my last 22 years, they're a blip on the radar screen. It shrinks everything. All of these things that he's been obsessing over. Why me? How could that happen? How, how am I going to pay them? But how is this all going to work out? All of that is thrown out the window when he sees the vastness of what God is doing. You see that verse. In order for the things that you're experiencing to be light and momentary, I think you have to be able to put them in the context of something that's bigger than they are. And that's God's plan. This design that he's been working since Genesis 3. The most conservative estimate of the earth is it's 10,000 years old. If you do a little ratio, which you don't want to do on a Sunday, so I'll do it for you. And you say that 10,000 years. Let's compress, let's make that a day, 24 hours. So 10,000 years equals 24 hours. Then your life, your 75 years, that's your average existence, is 18 minutes. That's less than a sitcom. That's how long you have. I think Joseph gets to see that during that three days, and he realizes 22 years, it's nothing. It's a commercial break. It shrinks all of this turmoil pulls him out of this victim mindset, and he can see this is what God is doing. For thousands of years before me and for thousands of years after me, in millions and millions and millions of lives, the entire world that that Joseph knows at the time, 
He's at work making everything new. The second thing, though, is it's not to say that those things are not difficult. It doesn't mean that what happened didn't matter. Joseph's brothers sinned against him. That's why they felt guilty for 22 years, because they'd sinned and they'd never confessed. They'd never repented. Potiphar's wife, she sinned against Joseph. She said he raped her, and he didn't. The cupbearer forgot Joseph. He didn't sin against him, but he neglected him for sure. He forgot about him. Those things were real, and just getting perspective doesn't mean that those things are okay. What it does mean, I think, is God's able to redeem. Perspective shrinks our difficulties, and it also gives God the opportunity to redeem them. We looked at this before. Joseph's understanding of his life, I think, before that three-day period, no good. It's not good. Why do bad things keep happening to me? My brothers are jealous of me, so they sell me into slavery. Because of my integrity, my unwillingness to compromise with Potiphar's wife, she throws me in jail. When I'm in jail, I help the cupbearer, and what does he do? He forgets about me. It'd be easy for him to whine. That can easily be his perspective on his life. I think what happens during that three-day period is he begins to see things like this. Next. Thanks, Alex. I think that's, that's how he begins to see himself. I think God redeems it. Oh, if I'm, my brother sold me into slavery. No good. That's a sin, but it got me to Egypt. It got me to Egypt. And then she falsely accuses me of assault. Not good. But at least it gets me in to Pharaoh's house. And it puts me in contact with people who can put me in front of Pharaoh. And I'm forgotten, but what if the cupbearer had, remi- had remembered me during that first year? And I'd gotten out of jail, then who would have been there to interpret the dreams? And if there's nobody there to interpret the dreams, then who's going to run the food program? Joseph's job didn't exist before Joseph. There's nobody running the food supply in Egypt until Pharaoh realizes he needs somebody to run the food supply in Egypt. And so it, it doesn't make any of those things necessarily okay, but it's a way in which God can redeem each one of those things because Joseph now has perspective. Joel 2, I think it's 25, God says he will restore the years the locusts have eaten, or he will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Some of you, if you look back, it is desolate. Six months, six years. You don't get it. It's not working out for you. You're trying, you're praying, all of those things. And if you look back, it is a field with nothing in it. In God's word to you, he will repay you. For the years the locust has eaten. That you don't get to go back. We don't get to go back in time. Those 22 years for Joseph are gone. He doesn't get them back in that sense. But what he does get is God meets him in those places and says, here's what I was doing there. Your brothers were 100% wrong. And I was 100% in the middle of it. That hurts my brain to try to figure out how both of those things can be true at the same time. But they're true at the same time. The brothers were totally wrong, 100% sinful in their actions, and God's in the middle of it. Potiphar's wife is 100% wrong and 100% sinful in her actions, and God is 100% in the middle of it. The cupbearer forgot Joseph, totally forgot about him after he'd helped him, and God's in the middle of that too. Again, I don't, in my brain, I can't figure out how both of those things are true. God didn't didn't inspire the brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. He didn't prompt Potiphar's wife to falsely accuse Joseph. 
The Bible's very clear. God doesn't sin and he doesn't tempt us to sin. And yet, the word here, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. I didn't just stumble into Egypt. God placed me here. Why? Because I gotta, I've got a job to do. God's doing this thing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people's lives, and I've got a job. My job is to make sure y'all make it through the next five years. That's it. That's what I do. I make sure y'all have food because God's forming a people through our great-granddad Abraham. And his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson is going to save the world. And if we die because we don't have food, then what does that mean for this? And so God redeems all of those things in Joseph's life. Again, it doesn't mean that they didn't happen. It doesn't mean they're okay. It just means they have meaning. We're great at telling our stories. Here's all the things that have happened, tragic or good. We're terrible at giving our stories any sense of meaning because we're living in the middle of them. We need to get on a mountain. We need three days with God and for him to pull back the curtain and say, this is what I'm up to. This is what I'm doing. It changes everything. It takes the difficulties that you're in now and it shrinks them. And you say, this is, this is not a big deal. The world is going to end, but it's not going to end because you bounced a check. And it's not going to end because your kid got a C. And it's not going to end because you got a terrible health diagnosis. And it's not going to end even because your marriage ends. That's not the end of the, the end of the world is when Jesus returns. And you'll know. You won't have to wonder. And that's what perspective does is it shrinks our problems. And it also gives God an opportunity to redeem every one of them. And so when we look back, we don't see this desolate, barren wasteland. What we see is if it hadn't been for that, then it couldn't be for this. If I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't be who I am. And for some of you, that's all you need to hear today. Let's pray. I just want you to sit. I can't give you the perspective that you need. You need to hear from the Lord. So we're just going to be quiet for a minute. Bo's going to come up. Let me just pray for y'all. God, I pray for any who would look back over six weeks or six months or six years and all they see is a chewed up field. The locusts have come through and they've devoured everything. You had Joseph for three days. I'm praying for us for three minutes. That you would give the men and women in this room who've been in the spin cycle some perspective. They know what's happened. They can tell their story. But would you show them where you're at work? And would you give them meaning? I want to minimize difficulties. I want to put them in perspective in light of what you're doing. Recognizing we all have a part to play. 
and the difficulties are light and momentary compared to forever and a new heaven and a new earth that impacts billions and billions and billions. Bo's just going to play quietly and sing quietly. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. So if, if you want prayer, please come forward. Otherwise, just stay in your seat and you can just kind of keep your eyes closed. If you're not, that's not for you. If you feel like you're good, you don't really need that perspective. And just pray for someone who does. Whether you know them by name or not, there are people in this room and they need to hear from the Lord before they leave. So just pray for them. It's not somber. It's not heavy. It's an opportunity to gain some perspective. And there are people here who need that. And then Bo will dismiss us in a couple of minutes.